Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. Doug Peacock served in Vietnam as a Green Beret medic. He came home an emotional and spiritual wreck, he says. After the war, he crawled into the mountains and found that solitude in wilderness was exactly what he needed to confront the demons of Vietnam. And he credits grizzly bears with restoring his soul. Doug Peacock is the model for Hey Duke and Edward Abbey's The Monkey Wrench Gang. And he'll give a keynote address at a symposium in Salt Lake City this week. It's beginning uh, tomorrow and running through Saturday. Very interesting symposium. It's called This Land is Your Land. Toward a better understanding of nature's resiliency building and restorative power for armed forces personnel, veterans, and their families. And the symposium is, uh, as I mentioned, Wednesday through Saturday. It's at the University of Utah Conference Center. Doug Peacock's keynote address is uh, Wednesday evening at 7 o'clock. About a year ago, uh, we talked with Doug Peacock on Access Utah about his latest book, interesting book on archaeology, climate change, the peopling of North America. It's called In the Shadow of the Sabertooth. And uh, we'll get to talking a bit, uh, perhaps more about that later in the program. Um, Doug Peacock, pleasure to welcome you back to Access Utah. Hey, Tom. Thanks a, thanks a lot. I'm looking forward to dropping back down to Utah. My... Uh my homeland embraces all of the Rocky Mountains, and I spent a lot of time in Utah, especially southern Utah, all the way from Escalante over to the San Juan Basin. Uh, do you do you still visit southeastern Utah? Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. I'll I'll, uh, I'll be down there in October, and I'm actually going to join some of my my brothers uh, who are uh, putting on this symposium. Uh, this land is your land. Um, and we're going to go down, and and we're going to have a sweat, and we're going to be uh, the Navajo Nation is is very kindly and generously assisting us in traditional uh, ceremonies down there. Oh, that's wonderful. And then I'll wonderful. be back again to roam the country in uh, in, in uh, November, probably until I hit some snow. Oh, you're just out there roaming the country. Yeah, well, you know, I got to go down and give a talk in Durango, and after that, I'm, I'm headed south eventually because I'm a, a seasonal nomad, and uh, I figure I'll camp out for a better part of a week somewhere uh, on Cedar Mesa. Oh, wonderful! Wonderful. Bit. Yeah, you know, down that country. So you live in uh, Emigrant, Montana. I'm at yeah, a small I'm place. Yeah, outside Downriver of Yellowstone National Park boundaries by about thirty miles or so. And uh, we're going to be talking about uh, your your work, much work with the grizzly bear, a lot of uh, conservation work. Uh, but I want to get into your, your history that uh, will uh, relate directly to this symposium, very interesting symposium about the, the healing power of the land for military veterans. And you have uh, some direct experience in this. You've written about this in, in several memoirs. So you grew up in Michigan, I understand. Yeah, that's true. I grew up in Michigan and... Uh, uh, I, I spent a lot of time in the woods, so uh, I've always been comfortable in the woods. My dad was a Boy Scout organizer, and he would drag me around to all the, the camps and lakes and woods and whatnot, and I was too little to be a Boy Scout, so I just got cut loose, you know, and uh, that's how I grew up. You know, the, the, the woods and the, the great swamps with the Serengeti of, of trumpeter and whistler swans and geese and ducks, uh, that, that was that was my childhood. And you, I I believe I've read you made an archaeological discovery. Yeah, I was a boy archaeologist, and uh, you know I figured out when I was about fourteen that that uh, 
these sand ridges in a flat landscape like uh, central Michigan uh, actually represented post-glacial stages of the Great Lakes. And according to the elevation, you could kind of tell how old they were. And I would walk these ridges and then the blowouts, you'd see arrowheads, spearheads, and and uh, other stuff, uh, and no pottery, which uh, meant to me that it was pre-agricultural. And one day I was walking along one of these ridges and I saw an anthill, which was a common feature, except this anthill was all red. And uh, it was red because the ants had gotten into a a uh, red ochre late archaic burial. A stillborn child was uh, buried with sacred red ochre and wrapped in about a thousand copper beads hammered out from copper from uh, the Keweenaw Peninsula of Lake Superior, about 3,700 years old. And I, uh, you know, I called up to University of Michigan and uh, made my first contacts there. I met an archaeologist named Mark Papworth who would, you know, return to me in the last in the last decade of his life, and, and we actually, Papworth uh, uh, and I and the local archaeologists re-excavated the oldest burial site in the Americas. That's the one you alluded to, the, the Clovis Child Burial that's 13,000 years old. It's right up here. It's about 30 miles north of where I live. And, and it, it's, it's all connected. It always, it always does seem like a single journey. Yeah, yeah, it, it, it does seem like that. Uh, so you, um, you went to University of Michigan? Yeah, I did. I, I, you know, guess what? I have a puppy, and uh, he's barking. Oh, oh, I didn't, here. I didn't hear him. So a, a I think we're here outside. I'm just going to let you. Okay, okay. Sounds, okay. sounds good. We don't, we don't need the band this time, you know. <laughs> what, what's his name? His name is River. River, very nice, very appropriate. Yeah. 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 Okay, you let River out. Uh, so I understand that uh, in in college uh, you, um, you sort of uh, got connected with the with the new left, uh, invited in Tom Hayden, Martin Luther King uh, Jr. And I, and I wonder, with with that kind of background, how did you end up in in Vietnam? Were you drafted? Uh, I was drafted, but at the time that I was drafted, I was so exhausted by the life or the lack of life that I was living, and I just volunteered for the draft, and that added another year to my uh, to my service, which at the time I didn't think was a big deal. I said, three years, it won't mean nothing. Of course, I was wrong about that, but uh, that's, that's what happened. Yeah, I, you know, I was, I was, I've always been sort of a loner, even in my political activist days at the University of Michigan, and, and mainly I ran speaker programs where I, you know, and I was able to bring Martin Luther King to the University of Michigan. That was a, that was a, really an important event uh, for all of us, I think. Yeah, yeah, certainly. So, and, you know, of course, I was also interested in the anti-war movement, and I didn't like what we were doing in Asia, but at that time... It was mainly Laos. Vietnam didn't come up in the early 60s so much. You know, we didn't know much about it until five years later. You know, there were a few, few Green Berets over there really early, but uh, uh, I uh, I didn't have any notion of anything when I went in the military. Uh, I never heard of the Special Forces, the Green Berets, and uh, I only signed up for that program when I heard about their medical training, which, you know, is... In 56 weeks, they teach you how to be a doctor without any, uh, you know, malpractice classes. It's really incredible medical training, and that's something I would need all my life because I'm the kind of person that wants to be able to take care of himself and my own 
and not to be dependent on the American medical system. So you had, uh, over in Vietnam, you're a medic, and uh, I guess eventually you're, you're, you know, sort of, the, the way I read it, you were uh, sort of, you know, running your own agenda. You would, you, you were out in the field. Uh, I wonder if you tell us at a certain point, you say, uh, you were ordered out of the field. Um, and uh, your, yeah. your higher-ups perceived that you were, you, were, you were not speaking English, you were speaking, uh, you know, the native language, really connected with the people, and I, I guess they perceived a problem there. Yeah, uh, and not very many of them did, but they were correct. I had, I suppose, you know, they have a phrase like going native, but I had spent so much time with indigenous uh, Vietnamese and Montagnard people, and you know, literally, all my all my day was spent. I didn't speak a word of English until I came back to the team house. And uh, and you know, being an, uh, a you know senior medic on a very remote A team in the highlands of what used to be South Vietnam. I mean, it was if you have authority problems and you're sort of an anarchist at heart, it's a dream job for a grunt. I mean. I didn't really have any, uh, you know, I didn't need any supervision, so I worked on my own. I led my own patrols because I could speak the language. And uh, and after the Tet Offensive, uh, I uh, I just kind of jumped around and patched bodies together wherever I thought I was needed without any regard to the military structure at all. And they did. They ordered me out of the field, and they were right. I was gone, and uh, I wasn't an American anymore. And... Uh, on the way out, uh, we flew, uh, you know, up, it, it, it's up in what what used to be the northern part of uh, South Vietnam and flew out to the coast, and the helicopter was sent to pick me up, got shot at, no big deal, we get shot at all the time. But I looked down and I recognized the place. I'd been there on the ground, and it, it was My Lai. And I didn't know until a year later when I saw, like everybody else, those pictures in Life magazine, you know, what was going on. And I flew over it when it was happening, and uh, that did something to me. After that moment, uh, you know, I was, uh, you know, I was really apart from the from the culture and society that I was supposed to be re-entering. You know, I could never do that after Milai, and I, uh, you know, I had a perverse sense of ownership, even though I wasn't on the ground there. You know, I just it haunted me. Hmm. So, uh, you've I said was there. Yeah, I was there ahead. for Veterans Day a couple of years ago, by the way. I went back to oh. Vietnam, and I was, the, uh, I was the only person there at My Lai during, during Vets Day. It was quite wonderful. What did the, so, so you were the only veteran there at, at My Lai on, on that occasion? Yeah, I, mm-hmm. yeah I, was only, I was the only person there, and then, you know, some French people showed up, but I was definitely the only American there. I was with another Green Beret and my wife, the three of us, uh, you know, we that's that's how we started out three weeks in Vietnam as by number one mm-hmm. going to Milai. What was that? What why did you want to, to start there? Just because it was a touchstone for an experience that was uh that was both beautiful and terrible. You know, I loved people. I loved the country of Vietnam. The war always caught up. And uh and, you know, I wanted to go back um, I had the 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 Tet Offensive really hit you know it hit the cities and it hit my little village too and um, and the crossfire the you know the uh, you know what's the word they use for accidental casualties uh, friendly fire 
Yeah, well, it's friendly fire, but you know, we we killed 180 women and children. Oh, oh, the, the crossfire and such. Yeah. The river, mm. and I was the only medic in the whole damn district at that time. You know, in the American sector, tiny one of that district. And that's how I spent my last few days. Just uh, I couldn't do much, you know, putting mm. together small bodies as I once wrote, trying to piece them back together, and. uh you know, Mila represents that edge of that experience, which was, again, beautiful and terrible. So you say, um, you said that you were very disillusioned, I don't know if that's the word you would use, disillusioned with American society, the society that could do this, I guess. I didn't feel I was part of it. I mean, I, I didn't know what I was, but, uh, you know... Um, I wasn't part of that society anymore. Hmm. And that's the attitude with which I went into the woods. And of course, when I came back in Vietnam, as you, as you summarized, just most accurately, I was out of sorts, couldn't talk to people. But I was comfortable in the wilderness, and that's why I kind of I camped out for, actually ended up being about a decade and a half. But, you know, that's what propelled me back into the wilderness. And, that's, and I ran into grizzlies. I wasn't looking for them, but I ran into them. And they sure as hell get your attention. Yeah. And collectively, that experience of, you know, being out there, especially with an animal that could kill and eat you any time it wants, um, is just exactly what I needed. You know, I couldn't need self-indulgence. You know, I needed something to really enforce a larger sense of humanity in me. And... Uh, you know, the, the brain affairs, they do that. <laughs> you don't think about, you know, your portfolio or your girlfriend or you're stumbling down a trail and I don't use trails much. But, you know, that great bear out there was, uh, it was a, a great, wonderful accident. And I remember, because I looked it up last week, um, in grizzly years I wrote, these bears had saved my life, and I think that's exactly true. And out of that, and the fact that wilderness has been... Uh, such an important part of my life and, uh, you know, creating a healthy atmosphere where I'm really fighting for great causes. Um, you know, there's, there's a, well, it's a, it's a term from the military and it, it variously used, but payback is really important to me. You know, uh, it was used by GIs and Marines in Vietnam frequently. And it's, but it, you know, basically means, you know, uh, if you take, you give. If you give, you take. And uh, uh, the gift, the wilderness, the wild, and these what great bears gave to me was uh, something that needed payback. And, you know, that's uh, so I spent the last 40 years of my life pretty much fighting for wilderness and, uh, you know, the rights of animals like, you know, bears and buffalo and wolverines, all of them actually. We're talking with Doug Peacock, if you just joined us. Uh, he's a naturalist. Uh, he's a conservationist. He has, uh, well, he has had a long career, as he said, uh, fighting for the grizzlies and for uh, uh, wild uh, places. Um, he came back from Vietnam wounded. He had uh, what would be diagnosed today as PTSD. And uh, he went out. He found that solitude and wilderness was exactly what he needed. And his encounter with grizzly bears uh, restored his soul, he says. We'll talk more about that. Very interesting stories about the grizzly bears and uh, talk about their plight today. 
Doug Peacock, as you can uh, probably tell from our conversation so far, is the perfect person to give the keynote address at an interesting symposium that will be beginning tomorrow. It's called This Land is Your Land, Toward a Better Understanding of Nature's Resiliency Building and Restorative Power for Armed Forces Personnel, Veterans, and Their Families. That's happening Wednesday through Saturday at the University of Utah Conference Center. Doug Peacock's keynote address is Wednesday evening at 7 o'clock there at the Conference Center, and we're happy to have him on Access Utah today. We'll take a break. When we come back, more with uh, Doug Peacock, uh, and you can join the program at 1-800-826-1495, 1-800-826-1495. Perhaps you are a military veteran, uh, have a vet in your family, um, perhaps you uh, want to talk about uh, wilderness. Um, any uh, of these related topics, we'll get into talking about grizzly bears as well. And uh, the email is upraxis at uh, gmail.com, upraxis at uh, gmail.com. Uh, Doug Peacock, we'll talk about this uh, after we come back. He said he has a, had a map of the Rockies while he was in Vietnam. He'd use that to try to keep himself sane. He'd imagine the places that he loved. More on that following this break. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and Elon Magazine, a bi-monthly artistic celebration of inspirational stories from extraordinary women, defining the Southwest lifestyle through culture, art, and adventure. Information at elonwoman.com. Next time on Living on Earth, biologist Kamal Bawa finds the answer to a naughty problem. Tropical rainforests are full of a large number of species. Two individuals of the same species may be as far as one kilometer. So the question is, how are they reproducing? His research on this helps him earn a $100,000 prize. I'm Steve Kerwood. That's next time on Living on Earth from PRI. Wednesday morning at 10 on Utah Public Radio. You're listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. I'm talking with Doug Peacock. He's a naturalist. Uh, he is an advocate for the grizzly bear and uh, many other uh, animals. His uh, latest book's a very interesting book. It's on archaeology, climate change, and the peopling of North America. It's the result of a 2007 Guggenheim Fellowship and a Lannan Fellowship in 2011. It's called In the Shadow of the Sabertooth. A renegade naturalist considers global warming, the first Americans, and the terrible beasts of the Pleistocene. It's now out in a revised edition. It's out from Counterpunch, uh, AK Press. We talked uh, extensively about that book when Doug Peacock was on last. It's about a year ago. You can find that on our website, upr.org. This time we're concentrating on his experiences uh, in Vietnam, following Vietnam. And uh, he says that after the war, he was a, an emotional and spiritual wreck. He crawled into the mountains that he loved, found that solitude in the wilderness was exactly what he needed to confront the demons of Vietnam, and he credits grizzly bears with restoring his soul. Uh, he is the model for Hayduke in Edward Abbey's The Monkey Wrench Gang. He'll give the keynote address at a symposium in Salt Lake City this week. It's called This Land is Your Land. It's about uh, wilderness and land in uh, restoring and uh, healing armed forces personnel, veterans, and their families. That symposium begins tomorrow evening with that keynote address by Doug Peacock, 7 o'clock at the University of Utah Conference Center, and continues then, uh, symposium does through Saturday. So Doug Peacock, before the break, uh, I mentioned this, you, that you had, a, I'd read you had a map. I don't know whether it was the Rockies or was some places that you loved, and you would pull this out while you were in Vietnam and, and imagine some of these beloved places, and that would help you. Yeah, it was just a little, little dark. 
dorky roadmap of the Rocky Mountains, you know, mostly just uh, Wyoming and Montana and parts of Utah. But you know, I I I I I, uh, I smuggled it in my in my military notebook, in which I was supposed to keep my military notes. And you know, before Vietnam, during the lectures, I just stare at this map. And you know, traveled with me to Vietnam. I had I had a special artifact, a, a kind of a big arrowhead that a friend gave me, and it was magic, and it was supposed to be a talisman to protect me from any enemy bullets. And for the most part, it worked. And uh, along with staying alive, I needed a reason to stay alive for, and that was the map. And so, you know, uh, after sitting in an A camp, after being mortared like hell, and, uh, you know, by by the, the local Viet Cong with with uh, lots of uh, civilian mass casualties after they've all been medevaced, I go back up and you know after the fight was over in the middle of the night I pour myself a whiskey coke or whatever and I'd get out this map and in my mind I'd travel over this map and I'd see these great big blank areas like in the Wind River Range or Yellowstone or up in Glacier empty country down in southern Utah, and, you know, in my mind, I'd, I'd fly over these places like an eagle, and, uh, you know, that's that's what I wanted to stay alive for. That's what I wanted to come back to. Mm. And, uh, you know, that, the, the roadmap in the Arrowhead kept me alive and gave me a reason to stay alive, because it was towards the end of my tour, uh, and then this happened, it's just not uncommon. I mean, I found myself waltzing around in firefights like I was a ghost warrior, you know. I just, I was just impervious. And uh, I took a lot more chances than I probably should have. Well, consciously, I wasn't aware of any, you know, death wish. I just, I'd lost all my fear, and uh, man, I needed that roadmap. I wonder if you'd uh, t- talk to me a bit about uh, the symptoms that you that you had following Vietnam. You came back. You said in a, in a previous interview, this really hit me. You said the soul can take a mortal wound; it'll never recover from. That you won't ever recover from PTSD, just to try to you know try to cope. Uh, and of course, PTSD wasn't even a diagnosis back then. No, you know, back then. First of all, uh, I, I didn't have any contact. I was just kind of a wacko, you know, and a firecracker would go off and I'd, I'd hit the dirt and all the, all the typical stuff. But I didn't know, you know, there was, I, I didn't know that anybody else had those problems. And it's curious because I hung out back, especially uh, when I got back almost immediately, I started hanging out with Ed Abbey. We'd take camping trips at one night. And, you know, Ed, whatever else you want to think, he rather nailed the, PTSD stuff in his 1975 book, The Monkey Wrench Game. And, you know, it didn't even have a name then. We didn't know what the hell it was, but I thought he nailed it pretty accurately. You know, and he also realized that, you know, besides being a wounded warrior, that uh, here, you know, here was an energy, all that viable anger and training going to waste, and it could be channeled for, you know, positive purposes. For a larger battle, that's more in alignment with life than in taking life, and that is really, you know, the, protect, the protection and defense of wild nature. 
How did you encounter Ed Abbey? Was it out in the wilderness? What? How'd you meet him? No, I, I met him through Bill Eastlake. Bill Eastlake used to be the great father of literature in the Southwest. He wrote beautiful novels, and uh, Bill invited me over to his house uh, one winter night when he was living on the outskirts of Tucson when it was really pretty wild out there, and and uh, and I had a motorcycle and I couldn't find it right away, and. Uh, it was cold and wintry, even though it was Tucson. And uh, I finally found the place pulled in, and he had a bunch of, I don't know who, writer-type, poet-type people sitting around. And I took a seat. There were about half a dozen people there, and I took a seat next to this guy with a dark beard. And at that time, I smoked cigarettes. So I tried to roll a, a bugle. You know, I had a little baggie full of uh, bugler tobacco and a, and a paper, and I tried to roll a little joint like cigarette. When I got it up, I tried to light it, and my hands were shaking. I was so cold. couldn't light my little cigarette. And this guy next to me reached over the lighter and gave me a light. I was at Abby. We talked about mountain lions. He invited me to come down to Oregon Pike to see him. In those days, it was considered good manners if you show up, you know, with a bottle of whiskey and a six-pack of beer, and uh, that's what happened. Hmm. T- tell us about Ed Abbey. He's sort of a, you know icon at this point, uh, Abby the Man. Tell us about him. Abby the Man, he was a cantankerous son of a bitch, and he was capable of incredible generosity. And he, one of the, uh, what he was really good at is being a great friend. Not just to me, but to all kinds of people, uh, you know, he befriended all kinds of people, Jack Leffler and Chuck Bowden. And he was a generous man, you know, especially encouraging writers like Chuck, for instance. We just lost Chuck. And uh, that's all part of the Abbey legacy, you know. And he was a guy, if he needed to do something, if he had to go on a mission or a monkey-wrenching mission, um, and, you, you know, he had a small team of two or three guys, he'd be on it every time. He was just, you know... He was at his best out in the field. And, you know, I'm not an easy person either, and back then I think I was impossible. So we had a, a cranky uh, friendship, you know. It took me, you know, I, you know, I didn't tell him I loved him until about four days before he died, but I did. And you were there at the end, yeah. right? In fact, you buried it, Abby, you say. That's, that's, that's true. Yeah. Uh, myself and three close friends took Ed out into the wild desert and buried him in a beautiful, illegal grave, according to his last wishes. Hmm. Um, what what, uh, what did you think of uh, George Washington Hayduke? What did you, yeah. Well, you know, uh, George Washington Hayduke was adult, and I don't think I'm quite adult. And, you know, um, there was a little tiny bit of friction, because, you know, you don't just take, you know, uh, the, the shell of a person and, and, uh, you know, and leave out the soul. A mutual friend of ours once said uh, to me about that, he said, Doug, friends don't do that to one another. But on the other hand, with Abby, it was kind of okay. We had a different kind of relationship, you know. Um, it, it, you know, he could get away with stuff other people couldn't just because I think I saw the value of his voice and his work really early on. You know, at towards the, towards the end, just a couple of months before he died, he he came over to my house and I wasn't there and stashed a bunch of muddy boots and a and a three fifty seven and 
and some, you know, monkey wrench type stuff, and, you know, and then left it in my house. Well, that sounds, you know, terrible. But in fact, that was okay with me. You know, Ed was up to mischief right to the end of his life, and it was something I approved of. And, uh, you know, it, uh, so the Hey Duke stuff, we got over that really quick. And, you know, it, 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 the balance of the, the glyphs of having Hayduke lives written on bathroom bar walls throughout the West was, uh, you know, counterbalanced by the adult-like uh, character Hayduke himself. But, you know, he, what Al, uh, Ed did with that book, it's, 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 uh, it transcends all that. That book is still out there. Hayduke lives Although I might add, barely, uh, you know. <laughs> right, right. Yeah. <laughs> it, 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 there's lots of cars out there, yeah. and and that's a hope. That's a knowledge that there's still people around to think like that, to know how important, you know, the notion of the wild is, whether you call it wilderness or anything else. It's uh, it's so important. It's like defending your home, and it's uh, it's sometimes necessary to, go beyond writing letters to your congressman to defend it, you know, and uh, civil disobedience has always been a choice, and it's still one today. Uh, I was going to ask you about that, whether you thought that, that where the line is and whether you think that's changed over time. Um, and we had, we, we had this debate most recently in Utah with uh, Tim DeChristopher. Um, so I wonder, where do you think that 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 line is. So you, you say sometimes you have to go beyond writing your congressman, but how far can you go? Should you go? Uh, you stop short of harming life. That's all. You don't harm life. Um, not people, not animals. And, uh, and you know, that's an individual choice. It, it, you, 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 you make it yourself. You, you do what you think is right or necessary. And, uh, What's right is not always legal, and vice versa. And if you get caught at it, you accept the consequences. You know, no whining. But you know, I, I from civil disobedience is something everybody should work participating in. You know, if it's if it's uh, you know, I've got a bunch of friends like Rick Bass and Terry Tempest Williams that were recently out in Washington. You know, and they're sitting down somewhere, blocking something, getting arrested. Well, it's it's okay to be arrested. Maybe everybody should spend a, a night in slammer uh, for a good cause. And uh, you know, I tend to be a loner. I don't do well with groups, and I, I, so I don't do that kind of thing. But I do other things. You say uh, interesting. I was reading another interview. Um, you said that there's a connection between at least the dates of Me Lai and the death of uh, Ed Abbey. Oh, so. God. Yeah, that's my Day of the Dead, you know, and, and uh, Day of the Dead in Mexico is a different date, and, but it's a way, it's our culture it doesn't provide us with a way to talk with our dead, and I do believe those conversations go on and need to go on. And uh, so my, again, one thing I'm going to talk about uh, tomorrow night is, you know, the the, the use of ceremony and, and the importance of uh, and, uh, the importance of ceremony and use of in the practice of the wild and you know in, in, in healing ceremonies and and uh, and in wilderness and 
So I create my own ceremony, and one of them is on March 16th, which is the anniversary of the My Lai Massacre, and it's also the anniversary of the day that three friends and myself dumped Ed Abbey into a beautiful desert wilderness grave. And uh, I, so I tend to go back out. I go back out to that grave, uh, not every year, but most years. And, uh, you know, I go out there with uh, maybe a bottle of mescal and some kind of food like the soli that I make myself and offering to the dead. And, I'm, and I have a conversation. And uh, that day means a lot to me. I spend the whole day, I sort of fast through the day. And, uh, uh, you know, when our culture and our mainstream culture does not provide us uh, with ceremony, we're not a people. If, if we were Navajos coming back from war, we would undergo a warrior's way right away. And, you know, our mainstream Anglo culture doesn't make up, doesn't provide us with ceremonial frameworks. And I think we have to make up our own. I certainly make up my own. And uh, and I will talk about that tomorrow night. I think it's something uh, individual returning veterans can think about and, and maybe construct their own observances. Um, you know, the, we just recently passed a couple uh, uh, anniversaries. You know, the, the, a week ago, I gave a 9-11 talk over in Billings. I got to... That was the anniversary of an event that launched our modern series of war, and that inevitably the two more generations of veterans returning home with wounds, both the ones you can see and the ones you can't see. And, uh, you know, a week before that, we celebrated the 50th uh, anniversary of the Wilderness Act, you know, and that's a day of some ceremony. And ritual observance and, uh, and celebration of anniversaries is, is just one definition of ceremony. That's why I use Milai and Ed Abbey's burial date together. It's one of my ceremonial days, holy days. What do what do those ceremonies do? How do you, how do you think that is that is healing? I, I can see, you know, I, I agree with you that the, those types of things can be healing. I wonder I wonder why. Well, for one thing, I step way back from my own society and my own culture. You know, and I've often said. The easiest exit I know on culture is wilderness. You know, go into the wilderness, doesn't matter where or why, and you spend a few days there, and all of a sudden, you know, you exist in a much more ancient, finished world. It's the one from which we evolved. You know, we didn't evolve in cities and farms. We evolved in places whose remnants today we call the wilderness. And uh, so you get away from, you know, you get away from, 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 from your own life, from your own culture, from all, all the anxieties and politics, and uh, and you're left with the core of your own being, and you carry that out. And you know, when I talk with Ed, it's not like uh, he talks back to me necessarily, but uh, I really, um, you know, I prepare myself. I, I don't go out there. Uh, uh, I, you know, I prepare myself. I watch what I eat and drink and what I think about, and and I, you know, I'll I'll, I'll build a little fire and throw, some, you know, whatever I've got, juniper, sage. It depends where I am. You know, do a little private, totally private purification ceremony, and then I go out and you know, I I I, I 
I try to I try to expose my soul to myself. And you know, I don't do that every day. I'm busy with stuff like everybody else in life. And uh, you know, I want to look down on you know the naked Doug and see what's in there and what remains to be done. You know, I'm I'm not gonna I'm I'm a geezer now, so I got a lot of work to do, and uh, I want to go into that work uh, with the right attitude of, of uh, respect and reverence. Well, it sounds like you you feel you've made some progress in this this work this work on on Doug. Yeah, you know, but you uh, one question that vets sometimes ask me, you know, they say, you know, I'm going to all this PTSD, you know, groups and therapy sessions. But 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 I'm not but but you know I'm not getting over it or sometimes I'm not getting better and I'm not sure that's the objective I don't think these are the kind of wounds that ever quite mend they certainly don't go away um, you know I think it's it's really possible to live a, a healthy life you know with a, a seared soul or whatever name you want to give to your own invisible wounds that grow out of trauma and uh, and do something with it and use it as an energetic force for good, you know, whatever whatever good work you have to do in your life will make you a stronger person and maybe we you can't expect just to get better for those things to go away. Hell, they're part, such an important part of your life um, and I, I will talk, you know, briefly about that tomorrow night. I mean, um, I consider, you know, the warrior's wounds to be akin to uh, the tr- tradition of death eyes, you know, and bestowing death eyes in shamanistic culture. Uh, I wonder what other advice you'd give to... Uh, do returning vets, do, do they seek you out when they learn your story? Mm-hmm. What advice do you give? Well, you know, um, uh, I give... Uh, I tell people to, you know, try a couple things. You know, all of uh, all of the going into the wilderness stuff is good. But I suggest, you know, sometime in your life, go to the wildest place where you feel comfortable and spend some time alone. And, you know, and, and that just depends. The idea is to be out there long enough by yourself to find humility before nature. You know, I've got a friend that can do it watching ants in his backyard. For me, you know, I need, I need the better... Four or five days and endless expanses of tundra. And and what is it ab- about that? Do you think whether it's your friend watching the ants or you, you know, in grizzly country, what is it about that that that's that, that's healing? I guess it gets you out outside of yourself for one thing. Yeah, and I, it opens you up. You know, I say humility before nature. A grizzly bear sure as hell helps. You know, because it comes a little quicker if you've got a few bears in the bushes. But basically, humility is the emotional posture behind reason. You know, it, it really opens you up to new thinking, to new ideas, to new insights about yourself. If you just joined us, we're talking with Doug Peacock. Uh, he is author of several books. Uh, for example, Grizzly Years in Search of the American Wilderness, Walking It Off, A Veteran's Chronicle of War and Wilderness, 
the essential grizzly. His latest book is In the Shadow of the Sabertooth, a renegade naturalist considers global warming, the first Americans, and the terrible beasts of the Pleistocene. Doug Peake and I talked about that book uh, about a year ago. You can look that up on upr.org. And we're talking about uh, his experiences in Vietnam, coming back. He said when he came back, he was an emotional and spiritual wreck, and he crawled into the mountains, found that solitude in the wilderness was exactly what he needed to confront the demons of Vietnam. He credits grizzly bears with restoring his soul. Uh, he's the model for Hey Duke and Edward Abbey is the Monkey Wrench Gang. We've talked a bit about Ed Abbey uh, today. He'll give the keynote address at a symposium in Salt Lake City this week. It's called This Land is Your Land. Toward a better understanding of nature's resiliency building and restorative power for armed forces personnel, veterans, and their families. It's happening on the University of Utah campus, University of Utah Conference Center. Doug Peacock's keynote address is Wednesday evening at 7 o'clock. That symposium is happening Wednesday through Saturday. Uh, so, Doug Peacock, uh, just about five minutes left, and I, I do want to talk about grizzly bears. You, you say that uh, for you, this idea of humility before nature, and uh, I can see this, cause it was certainly produced by being in grizzly country. You have to rivet your attention, and you have these large beasts around you who could uh, kill and eat you. You found a great affinity for, for grizzly bears. So I wonder if you tell us uh, you know, maybe about your first encounter uh, how you came to love these these animals? Um, you know, my first encounter, I was uh, soaking in a hot spring in Yellowstone after a malaria attack, and I didn't know anything about grizzlies, you know, and uh, I looked over my shoulder, and there was a mother grizzly and two yearling cubs about 200 feet away, and I said, I, you know, I didn't know anything about grizzlies, except you weren't supposed to get close to mothers with cubs, and... Uh, they didn't look at me, but I decided I was going to climb a tree by this tiny creek, you know, which is hot. And uh, so I stood up out of this hot spring, this hot creek, as it were, and uh, I made a bolt for this tree that was right on the bank of this little baby creek. And it was uh, the whirlpool-like effect of the hot water caused me to blank out, you know. I blacked out, and I hit the tree smack on my forehead and cut a huge gas, and the blood's running down my face. And I was still so terrified, I scrambled up to the top of this tree. And I, uh, when I got to the top of the tree, I discovered it wasn't much bigger than a Christmas tree. And anyway, that grizzly family continued to graze on the grass, sometimes within 20 feet of me, without once looking at me. They knew I was there the whole time. But I was up there in the October wind, you know, naked, blue, and bleeding like some species of silly wren. And those bears really got my attention. That was the beginning of it. Hmm. You had another experience. Might, uh, yeah, go ahead. You know, I, and I might say, uh, with a symposium like uh, "And Is Your Land," I am going to talk about mundane things. You know, the, ah, the, okay. the, the, the protection of that land. Some people want to take it away. What is you know appropriate use of that land? You know, is is recreational practice a good enough reason to go in the wilderness? Stuff like that. Also, grizzly bears in Yellowstone, the federal government, the Federal Wildlife Service, has decided they're going to remove all federal protection. They're doing that right now, and I'm fighting it. You know, they, they, uh, they tried to do this uh, back in 2007. They, it's called delisting to take the grizzly bear off the Endangered Species Act and, you know, turn all the management over to the, the adjacent states who will hunt them into extinction. But anyway, uh, that's going on right now, and uh, and it's uh, it's an uphill fight, and 
I'm going to talk about it. I'm going to fight it. And, you know, I'm coming down to Utah to look for allies in that fight. I'm really looking forward to, you know, talking to uh, some of my friends that run outdoor programs for some of these conservation groups and their veterans outreach. I mean, what a, you know, what a team those warriors would make. And we've got a battle in front of us. And that's to keep, you know, uh, Yellowstone's grizzlies really from winking out. It's an island ecosystem. Global warming has trashed the number one food of grizzly bears in Yellowstone, which is the nuts from the whitebark pine tree. Uh, you know, the mountain pine beetle has decimated those forests. Ninety-five to ninety-eight percent of all whitebark pine mature trees are dead. And uh, so, anyway, I'm going to a, a few fun things like that are going to come up, and uh, and we should be prepared to talk about it. You know, a lot of the states want to take, including Utah, want to, you know, want to, want to, want to take uh, management of federal lands, the BLM lands, the forest lands, away from the federal government so they can, you know, sell gas leases and plots for development and whatnot. And, uh, you know, I'm an enemy of that effort, and I'll, I'll bring it up. So what, what what's the top thing that you would say in, in terms of um, protecting the, the grizzly bear, prevent delisting? Increase habitat. What, what's what's the biggest thing? Yeah, you know, it, it's we have to keep the federal protection on because with since the you know this whitebark pine tree has been killed, it's collapsed. You know, the nut is no longer available, and since and that that really uh, you know that happened about 2007, the mortality you know both from livestock uh, interactions with ranchers and from hunters. For other game, you know, the, the mortality for grizzlies has skyrocketed since 2007. And, uh, you know, the population is on a decline or level. Uh, but anyway, it doesn't take, you know, weathermen to figure that one out. The state of Wyoming has threatened to put out 60 hunting permits the first year. Well, what if Idaho and Montana join them? And like I say, it's, a, you know, population, we don't know how many, but maybe five or 600 bears. Um, you add up all that mortality and you're, you know, you're killing off a couple hundred bears a year. Uh, it's, you know, the grizzly bear is, you know, along with polar bear and muskox, lowest reproductive large animal on the continent. And it will wink out. It cannot recover from that kind of mortality. And it needs federal protection and it needs us to build links or corridors, you know, Ways to get grizzlies, and we have the biology and technology to do this. Day. Over or under freeways, we need to get them into the bitter root. We need to get them in crazy mountains. We need to link up glacier to Yellowstone in terms of ecosystems. We can do that. And as you say, that could be a, a new mission for some men who are used to used to going on missions. Uh, speak to the veterans. Yeah, yeah. I think it's a great opportunity. Yeah. Oh, just a just a minute or two left. I wonder at the end here, if you could talk to us uh, about the need for wilderness. Fiftieth anniversary of the Wilderness Act. You say it's been very important in your life. Uh, what about to all of us? Well, what I believe is the beast of our time is global warming, and it's happening happening much. Uh, you know, it's 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 happening much faster and more severely than anybody is talking about. And and I, you know, when people talk the end of the century, I talk about the end of the decade. You know, it, it, anyway, I, I don't want to, you know, 
I don't want to be a great bummer, so I'm not going to list those things. But um, we are going to, you know, all animals are going to have to adapt to a hotter, drier, uh, less productive habitat, including two-legged ones. And uh, so I work to not just protect, but to create new wilderness areas. You know, Round River Conservation Studies, based in Salt Lake, working with Native peoples, has created almost 25 million acres of wilderness. That's a third or fourth as much as the government has in, in 60 years. And this is just a, you know, one small committed group. But that is basically the habitat from which we homo sapiens evolved. That's our native home. And to think that we're not going to need some of that native habitat when a great big collapse happens, and it will, uh, is crazy. And also, with us, we're going to take down countless plants and, uh, and animals along with us. We owe them a chance, too. And again, the best chance for everybody is to create, you know, the true habitat for humanity is not a bunch of projects. It's wilderness. And uh, that's what I'll spend the rest of my life fighting for. It's our best hope, along with every other living thing on Earth. We'll end it there. Uh, Doug Peacock is a naturalist. Uh, he is uh, going to be at uh, University of Utah in the Salt Lake City for an, a symposium, which is beginning uh, tomorrow night, uh, Wednesday night. It's called This Land is Your Land, Toward a Better Understanding of Nature's Resiliency Building and Restorative Power for Armed Forces Personnel, Veterans, and Their Families. You can find information on that by uh, probably just the easiest way is Google uh, This Land is Your Land Symposium, and uh, that'll come up for you. Um, he is author of several books. The latest is In the Shadow of the Sabretooth. Very interesting read. And uh, Doug Peacock is giving the keynote address to that symposium. That is Wednesday evening at 7 at the University of Utah Conference Center. And information on Round River Conservation is roundriver.info. Doug Peacock, pleasure. Thank you so much. Hey, Tom. It's been a pleasure and privilege. Thank you. Thank you. And uh, join us uh, tomorrow for uh, Sherry Quinn with uh, Access Utah and Science Questions. Thanks for listening today. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and Body Worlds. Animal Inside Out, the new exhibition now at the Leonardo in downtown Salt Lake City. From goats to giraffes, bulls to birds, octopi to ostriches, visitors will discover the form and function of animals both exotic and familiar at Animal Inside Out. Information at theleonardo.org. And Crumb Brothers Artisan Bread in Logan. Open for breakfast Monday through Friday at 7 a.m. and Saturdays at 8 a.m. Offering a selection of French pastries and a variety of sweet and savory menu items. Details at crumbbrothers.com.